Welcome to another episode of Sandhill Road. And I have a great guest with me here today, Sean Tang. He's the founding GP of the Skydeck Fund. And I had in a previous episode, I think it was episode 18, I had Caroline Winnett on the show, who's the managing partner of the Skydeck Accelerator. And for those cohorts that go through the Skydeck Accelerator, Sean, you're sort of the next person to talk to. Give us a two-minute pitch about who you are and what you do. Oh, no. I'm not sure that I'm ready with a two-minute pitch, but I'll give it my very best. I, you know, the hardest thing for us is always consistently having to explain that while we sound familiar, we're actually pretty different. So, yes, the Berkeley Skydeck is, a, a, is the official sort of accelerator for UC Berkeley, yes, our fund is the investment vehicle that writes checks into those companies. But as you really scratch the surface, uh, that story is pretty distinct from lots of other players out there that build a similar model. It's different in terms of the structure. It's different in terms of the value proposition, uh, the kind of companies that we go after, the kind of investors that we go after. But but in, in short, what, what we do is, as has already been said, we, we invest into each of these, these uh, companies. They come in on very fixed terms. We have a special hook for why they should be here. But once they come in, we run a check into that that um, on day one. So it's uh, right now for with fund two, which was just raised earlier this year, we're, we're putting in 200K for 7.5%. Um, and then they spent six months here consuming, taking advantage of all the resources that we have at their, their uh, disposal. And, and then they pitch in front of 800 investors at Demo Day. They go off and they raise huge rounds. Uh, the one thing that I'll point out immediately is that the investors that the, the source of capital that goes into these uh, companies, because people often have, there's some common misconceptions there. We're not backed by the endowment. We're not backed by taxpayers. There's not one penny from the school that's in this fund. Even Berkeley alumni are a tiny proportion of the investors. The backers of our companies are financial investors. These are institutional investors, they're pension funds. There's a sovereign fund in there. And these are players who really, quite honestly, don't care about Berkeley. There's no affinity there, but they're doing this because they understand that we're able to give our investors outstanding financial returns. And that's why this is so exciting. You know, it's a unique public-private partnership where the school absolutely benefits. The taxpayers will absolutely benefit. The students will benefit. The founders will benefit. The VCs will benefit. And the investors into our fund will certainly do quite well as well. And one thing I didn't ask you in the beginning is where does it find you today? Because for the people out there, Skydeck, and I brought my, my Cal sweater here today, Skydeck sits on Shadok Avenue right at the BART station. It's sort of at the, at the top of the building. Are you in the accelerator? Right now, I I I am. I, I don't know if you can tell because the, the lighting. I, but I am uh, in downtown Berkeley as we speak. We the building that we are in used to be called the Power Bar Building for the uh, folks in the area from ten plus years ago. Now it is known as the Skydeck Building. We have a uh, giant sign on top of the building that can be seen from miles around from campus. That was very very important, and we expect that this building will be what we call the global hub for entrepreneurship for decades to come. Yeah, I love it. I love it there. As I told you, I was a PhD visiting scholar in Berkeley for a while. And I think when you yourself were a PhD student, it was in the midst of the dot-com bubble. Take us back to those early days when you did what any good PhD would do, as the founders of Yahoo said, which is not to work on your PhD and rather start a startup. It's dangerous because I know I, at some point soon, I hope it's not yet, sometime soon, 
the young ones out there will hear the story and be like, ah, there goes the boomers, you know, they're talking about ancient history. But certainly I think the, the lessons that I've seen in the two cycles that I've experienced so far, I think they absolutely apply to that. So, you know, it's really fun comparing the startup infrastructure and ecosystem back in 98. So I graduated from Berkeley with a bachelor's in EECS in 1998 compared to what the undergrads now are like, you know, the undergrads now, I think all, all, all of you out there listening on that age group, you get it. You know, I see high school seniors, college freshmen that are getting funded, right? I mean, like, you know, they come in with that mindset. They know what venture is. They, they know how this, this game works. 20 years ago, you know, for those of us who are really at pretty much the, the heart of the Valley. And I don't think I was alone in this respect. I had no idea what startups were. And I remember the first time that I saw one of our, one of the faculty at Berkeley, who I'm not going to name, had a company that was starting to do really well. And he showed up in a really nice car and everybody said, oh, wait, you could make money doing this. I mean, honestly, it was like the light look going, at least for some of us, it was like, wow, I didn't know that was an option for, because for most of us, the dream was working at Microsoft working at Intel, working at Sun, like that was it. I went off to, uh, to do my PhD at MIT and over those two or three years, like that knowledge of, wow, this was, this is a unbelievable new method for value creation that, that you could go from grad school or from school directly and, and take what you learn and create a massive company. That idea really started to set in. I, I still remember that, I mean, on my floor at my lab at MIT, there were probably called a hundred plus grad students in uh, computer science at MIT. There's probably a couple of us, maybe two or three that really had interest in even exploring this, right? Which is obviously very different from how things are now. Long story short, in the original dot-com bubble, which we did not know was a bubble, we thought it was a rocket ship. I left grad school. I had a co-founder from HBS. And with that pairing in the exciting days of 2000, it felt like we couldn't fail. I, I like to contrast that for founders who, who are going through the journey now. Every founder who listens to your podcast, they already know that there's a high chance of failure. You know, they, they know the odds are against them. They've seen the statistics and they just happen to believe that they have the special skills that, you know, to beat the odds. In 2000, I think back, and we were so naive because nobody had seen this before. There was no gray hairs out, out there saying, hey, you know, Chan, I don't know this is going to go well. Instead, it was just, it's a revolution. Dot com, internet, it's a revolution to how things are, are done. Obviously, the capital markets thought that, but the founders thought that too. We were on the cusp of just this new era, and the sooner that you got in, the better it would be. And then to leave grad school in the fall of 2000, filled with confidence and see all that crush within six months was just shattering. You know, I tell people a lot that back then it felt like learning that the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus were fake on the same day, right? Because we had a mental model that I had carefully constructed over the previous five years about what the world was like and what the world was going to be. And then to realize that it was all BS. To realize that, sure, your company is worth X dollars. If that company is worth, you know, Y, that makes sense. Unless Y turns out to be a zero, in which case your company is also worth a zero, right? So it was one of the most depressing periods in my life, honestly. And, and you know, this is something that I think a lot of founders will sympathize with, even though they haven't thought about it. Like if you're going to attempt to start a company Odds are pretty good that you've been successful in life so far. You did well in high school. 
you did well in college, you did well in your internships, you did well in grad school, you've gotten every job offer you've ever interviewed for. So you have this confidence, right? Of course you do. That's why you're thinking, I can change the world. But then to run square into this wall where even now, 60% of the companies out there aren't going to make it. And depends on how you see this, it might even be more. But back then, you know, of the companies that were formed in 2000, 90% failed, right? So that absolute shock was unbelievable. But what was nice about that, and I always tell founders, is that going through that earth-shaking, value-shaking, you know, a reset of my mental map and having that giant failure was one of the best things that I could have gone through. To, because to get through it at that stage in your career, guess what? No more fear of failure. I got nothing left. You were so transparent about it. And I think you mentioned on another podcast, how back in the day, everybody would raise on a PowerPoint without an MVP, without initial traction, without initial users. And then to, to see it all blow up in your face and that you're still carrying some trauma with you as I think any founder does to some extent. Let's talk about how you then transitioned from being a founder to an angel. And I think we were also co-investors in Circle Medical. We talked about it a couple of years ago, which had an exit, but you have 35 personal angel investments, two of them IPO'd. So you've been writing a couple of great success stories there. So I'll give a little bit more about my career trajectory because it all feeds really nicely into the kind of work that I am doing now. So after the trauma stayed with me for five, six years and, and I, and I didn't want to read the press. I, I didn't care anymore. And I was like, turn, you know, if dot com came on, on the news, I would turn, turn off the TV. But then, you know, five, six years um, later, that urge really came back. It's just that, that creative process. And I think all founders out there understand this, that creative process of looking um, to change the world and build something, it's calls to you. So I wasn't ready to be a founder again, but um, I had a, a little bit of capital. And I said, you know what? I want to be an angel. So I sat across the table. I, I learned by joining a couple of angel groups, just a fascinating experience that, that I really actually, you know, it's become kind of less of a thing because so much is done on Twitter now and on angel list. But I actually think that there is something pure about an angel group that, that I encourage angels to seriously consider. It's a great way to learn. So I made 10 investments back then. I was quite fortunate. Two of the 10 actually did end up going public. But professionally, actually, what I was doing was not a professional angel investor. I actually started and ran my own quant hedge fund, right? So not going to go into great detail about that, but the idea was, was pretty simple. The 2008 fi financial crisis, priced muck. I'd done some quant finance in grad school. So I was like, hey, there must be stuff that's not priced correctly. Found it because I had lost my fear of failure. I said, I'm going to go build a fund. Like, why wouldn't I? Now, the fact that no one else does that didn't really concern me. So built some code. I started to trade. It was working. And so I did that for about six years, starting Fundraising in that world is also not easy, which is something that I, I carried over to the VC world. You know, I, I think I understand how the capital markets work. I understand what it takes to convince a LP to give you their money. They are giving it to you in the most sacred of ways. It's, it's actually different from why a customer might give it to you. A, a, a customer might, might buy your product is it helps them in a number of ways. The only reason a LP gives you money is because they want you to make them more money. That's it. So that sort of very pure experience where all of the packaging, there was no storytelling. It was just like, show me how you're going to make me more money than 
that person B or person C. But so uh, I left that career, although my fund was highly successful because psychologically the pressure just builds and builds and builds, especially since I was placing a thousand trades with hundreds of millions of dollars on the line every single day. And, and that fear of my code crashing was just overwhelming. Walked away and got back to angel investing where I got very active making 20 plus investments in one year, which required me to see a lot of deal flow. I was advising at all of the major accelerators on the West Coast. I would fly down to LA, you know, and just, just to meet, meet some companies. I didn't have a job. It was, it was this and playing golf, you know, and, and that force meant coming back to my alma mater uh, at Berkeley and Berkeley Skydeck was already a, you know, an excellent platform back then under Caroline's direction. And they, they approached me and said, Hey, you know, it's sure we fund if we could build, build a fund here. Like, do you think that's possible? Cause if we had a fund, we have more, more deal flow, the companies will grow faster, all good things. My thought at the time quite transparently, and I've told Caroline this, and I've told the campus this, so I'm not embarrassed about seeing it here. But I thought the time was that, that's not a great idea. Because where is the edge, right? For every Berkeley accelerator out there, there's one at Stanford, there's one at UCLA, there's one at CMU, UT Austin, not just in the US, right? Now it's global. Every school on the planet with a decent engineering department has a platform like this. And as VCs and as capital market investors, you're going to go where I make the most money. So with that in mind, why would I invest in any vehicle that was tied to one small pool? A great pool. Don't get me wrong. I love Brooklyn. I love the talent here and the entrepreneurial ecosystem here. But it's one small pool of thousands. But I said, hey, happy to give back, happy to help out. I, I knew how to stand up a fund because I had done that before. And I figured we would just go find some Cal alumni who go to, go to football games and wear sweatshirts and we would go get some beers and watch some Cal basketball. Why not? Let's do it. But I never thought it'd ever be more than $5 million, $10 million. That's what a lot of these vehicles tend to be. And then, and then from, from that, that point on, you know, that would be it. I would put in 50% of my time maybe even that, and that's it. Surprisingly, three months into the process, inspiration, which is something that I think founders understand, right? Like you, you go into a business knowing that you have an idea for what you want to do. I'm not sure it's the best one, but you keep your ears open that you're thinking about your competitive advantage. You're thinking about market pain points. And then boom, that one day you wake up, you have a cup of coffee and it hits you. Why don't I do it this way? So the inspiration for us was, you know, what was the constraint? I just said, well, if you're just investing in Berkeley, that's a small pool of thousands of, of pools. And not just that, the best of Berkeley aren't tied to you. They can go anywhere. They're going straight to Sequoia and Excel and, and of course the YC and 500, you know, so that, that didn't work. But you know what Berkeley is amazing at? Berkeley's not just a source of talent. Berkeley itself is one of the best. It is the best acceleration ecosystem in the world. I mean, there's a reason why Intel, um, and it's really much of the valley came from this kind of a culture, from this e ecosystem. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where the idea comes from. You come here and you'll get the talent and the support that you need to build it into a massive business. So when that hit, it was like, wait a minute, why are we, why are we constricting ourselves? We identified a group of founders that we realized the rest of the valley was ignoring 
or to a large degree was unable to invest in. And I'm talking about the 6 billion people who happen to not live in the U.S. Okay. Now the U.S. is obviously at the forefront of so much of this work and much of the world's best and brightest do come here for grad school, but certainly not all of them. There are billions of people around the world who are great technologists and engineers. They've seen your podcasts. They've seen the videos on YouTube. They've read the tweets. They've read the books. They have access to AWS. They have access to GitHub. They have access to TensorFlow. They have the ability to build a product as good as anybody that's already currently here in, in the valley. Right? And yet, when you talk to those founders and for those of us who have spent any time having that conversation, you already know that just because you're not from the U.S., that hurdle, that bar is 10 exciting, right? 10 exciting, at least 10, 10 exciting, at least at the early stages, right? So all the capital is here, all the talent is here, but when you show up with your perfectly written pitch deck where, it, you're, where your market vision is perfect, your product vision is perfect, your traction is as good as can possibly be considering how much you already raised, all that is great, but then when the BC gets to the team slide and it's two PhDs from Poland, it's an engineer from a, a car company in Germany, they lose interest, right? So it's a little bit like you were arbitraging commodities before and you found this pattern, you know, the market is underpricing a certain type of founder that if you add this ingredient, which is this relation or this time spent in the valley, where you can shape and inform it, then you can sell it at a premium to the next stage investors. You nailed it. I mean, I, I, I knew that would make sense to you because of your back background as well. I think people on Wall Street get this, right? If you look for mispriced things, they're mispriced for a reason, right? And then you figure out what the reason is and then you fix it and then you make money. So th that was it. It was just amazing when we started to have that conversation with Ford founders. It was also amazing when I talked to the VC, as you probably know, you know, our flood one was backed by some of the biggest VCs in the Valley, Sequoia, Mayfield, Sierra, Canvas were all investors in fund one, not the, you know, the partners, their funds were. But we've also spoken just about every other fund worth speaking to in the Valley. And when I tell them that story, they'll kind of nod their heads and go, yeah, I would not dispute that. You're absolutely right. I see that pitch that I come in and I hit the lead. Right now. So what does Brooklyn do, do about it? Let's we spend just two minutes. Speaking about that briefly, I think everybody here who's in venture will, in startup land, will, will see the appeal. So there's three main pillars. The first one is really team. You come in, two PhDs from some school in Europe, or, or not in Europe, in Argentina, in Singapore, right? We are very global. You come in, the first, you spend six months in Berkeley. Thank God that we're mostly done with COVID. So you spend six months in Berkeley. The first thing is team. We surround you with so much, with 450 advisors, including the co-founders of Tesla and DoorDash. We have thousands of people on campus, MBAs, current postdocs, undergrads, and grad students. And we have faculty. We're happy to serve on your advisory boards. So if you leverage that properly in six months, you transform your, your team fundamentally. Okay. The second piece is go to market. Now we all know that investors love traction and U.S. investors in particular value traction in the U.S. They want to know if I invest in you and I'm going to help you, I'm going to open up my contact list, my real decks to help you get connections here. How quickly can you grow, right? So if you don't have any traction, 
much harder. You look at a, a lot of other venture funds or accelerators, and the network is whoever ha- the GP is. And obviously, if you're Sequoia, your network is pretty impressive when you're the GP there. But if this was Chan's accelerator, my network is decent. But let's talk about what we have here. This is the Berkeley network. It's the 500,000 Berkeley alumni. 80% of them are still in the Bay Area. They're not just in tech. I mean, obviously, we're well covered in, in tech, but they're also in entertainment, in sports, in government, in healthcare. You want to be in a hospital? No problem. You want to be in a restaurant? You got it, right? Go on LinkedIn, filter based on school. They're podcasters, apparently, right? So uh, we can reach out to them on behalf of Berkeley and say, hey, go Bears. We have a company that would love an hour of your time. But this is, we're asking for this because this is how you can pay back your alma mater, right? Share your insights, hear their story. And by the way, if this company does well, UC Berkeley will benefit financially. Then this is another unique angle of that public-private partnership that we have going on. 50% of the GP carry share goes back to Berkeley, right? And we didn't do that. A lot of people hear that and they, their mind immediately goes, oh, you did that to attract LP capital. No, as I said, 98% of our investors could care less if Berkeley didn't exist tomorrow, right? That's not a nice thing to say, but that's the truth. They're here to, to get money. Who I want to incentivize with that GP carry share with the 500,000 alumni out there who are now willing to lend some time to any of my foreign founders and help them find their way here. I love that aspect. I discussed it with Caroline already that you have this 50% carry share with the university, which is absolutely unique. Maybe talking a little bit about the last vintage that you just raised. So it's the sophomore fund, the 60 million fund, which was just recently announced. So in the first vintage, you had Sequoia, you had Matrix, you had Sierra Ventures, Canvas, sort of also for them. I would assume it, it's sort of like their scout program that they get early access to a lot of deal flow and then they can lead the series A when, when things are a bit more evolved. How was the fundraising for fund two and sort of what's you touch up on it on the, the LP base, there's a sovereign wealth fund, there are some pension funds, but how hard was it to convey this story as this is not the typical seed fund story? Yeah. So fund one was 23.5 million. And when you think back to where we were in fund one, this global story was a vision. It hadn't been done before. There was no track record. We just really went to companies that had gone through Berkeley, come out of the Berkeley ecosystem before, but anybody with some insight would have said, well, that's not going to be your portfolio. So I don't know how that helps you. So fund one was really going after people who would understand the vision which is why, you know, very grateful to the VC partners and certainly some high net worth and some corporate investors, but they all had the same vision. It was like, I don't know that I'm going to make money from this investment, but I just think that this would be a really interesting source of deal flow. So let's do it on that, on that camp. And, and I think it's worked out. There've been quite a few investments that have been led by those on funds, but for fun too, you know, that's not scalable. It's not really the business that I want to be in. I don't want Berkeley to be a captive pipeline to any specific investor. So for fun too, the visual was always, Hey, we need to graduate. You, you said it's the software fund, but I think of it as, you know, really a massive shift in maturity towards, Hey, Google will be the LPs for the long run, right? Okay. So now we have three, four years of track record. 
some exits, obviously not very much, not what you're investing at the stage that we invest in. But we have now have some data. We have specific companies that we can speak to. These guys came in, they got this from Brooklyn, they're worth A, and then they went out, now they're worth 10A, right? So so that was that allowed us to have the conversations. We were actually expecting to get thought to probably close it and that was the original timeline that we had. Something happened in 2020. I, I think we're all pretty aware of it. So it disrupted our plans, but we all could do it like everyone else. Just you tread water, you wait and see how things evolve. And then last year, we felt like the window was opening again. I should mention here that Sequoia has also been a really important part of our fundraise. So even though Sequoia is no longer an investor in Fund 2, we formed a very strategic partnership where they said, hey, Chan, we're going to open up our build decks and introduce some of our investors to you. And as you can imagine, when Sequoia calls, you know, people tend to listen. So very grateful for that. But beyond those connections, it was also just finding people, you know, we're still early from a LP, GP perspective. Fund three is when it really gets easy is now you have the exits to validate your performance. But I have to say, I mean, fund one proof performance is just spectacular. You know, that thesis that, that we've just been talking about both, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the overlooked stuff from the global piece, but there's also a lot of overlooked stuff in the UC pipeline as well. These are not necessarily the sharpest stories when they come in because their PhD is coming from, you know, from school, but we've really shown that we're good at this, right? That has translated into a very strong fund too. And I should explain a little bit more. Fund one, we did 40 companies per year. Fund two is almost three X the size of fund one. We're not three Xing the program. Okay. We're writing a bigger check. We'll do more of the follow-ups, but we were very explicit that there's no way that we're going to change the nature of our program. There's a lot of other accelerators that, that will go unnamed, but there's a couple massive, you know, amazing brands, amazing platforms where the founder's experience will be fundamentally different. So even though it's a $68 million fund, we're still only going to invest in 40 companies a year. That's the current number. And we're going to have 400 plus advisors surrounding 20 companies at any given time. Yeah. I mean, I, I just talked to a founder who went through the first batch of YC and through the last batch of YC and he has the full arc, you know, he was part of the, the Kiko team, the, the Twitch team back in the days, 2005 batch. And now, you know, obviously being part of, of this huge batch. So I'm a big fan of keeping the, the batch size small and actually being able to deliver on the value add that the accelerators are promising for taking a good chunk of the company to make it worth for the founders. Talking a little bit about portfolio construction here. You touched upon this a little bit. Obviously you have a long J curve being sort of the first check-in, you know, investing at the pre-seed stage and then taking it all the way through with the pro rata rights. How do you think about portfolio construction? Excellent question, because it is a one that I think about a lot. It's one small correction. We are probably the only seed fund in history that didn't have a J curve. We never had a drawdown. And that's because the value proposition is so compelling that the companies that are coming in, it's an arbitrage play, right? So these are companies that are raising at 6 million, 8 million pre in, in their home markets. And they come in and allow us to invest at a, you know, two, 2 million pre in fund one and now 2.6 mil in a fund two. So we never had a J curve. On a technical level, does it mean that 
when you write the initial check, you can already write it up to basically the valuation that they've raised with other investors. No, no, no. We, we wouldn't mark up to their last round that I think that I think our, the auditors would have a real problem with that, <laughs> but no, just means that these companies are often in a position where when they get to demo day for them to, to raise more at, you know, six, eight, 10, it's kind of a default, you know what I mean? So in terms of the portfolio cons construction, you know, I've, my view of ventures is, is I think pretty distinct from the vast majority of VCs that I know. I don't think about ownership. I think about having edge. Okay. I, I read all of the arguments for ownership and for your power law and, and, and more. And I think it, it makes sense for certain types of funds in a certain context, but I would go as far as saying that for 90% of the venture funds now, it doesn't apply to them. And I wish that they understood that from a portfolio construction point of view. When I talked to one of my investors, I explained to them, look, we have real alpha. We have an edge. The first source of the edge comes from the fact that we're investing these mispriced assets, right? That's the first one. So obviously we're going to do well there. And the second source of edge comes on the first check, the first follow-on check after our program. BCs are writing term sheets on, on the basis of knowing them for a, a week, for a month, right? Their, their level of insight is not really enough. Sometimes they overprice it, in which case we pass. In some cases they underprice it significantly. Wishes will go into that. I mean, we've known these founders for not just knowing them, but we literally sit, eat, play with them for six plus months. We know them well. So those are my two sources of edge, and I'm going to leverage that. For the A, for the B, for the C. So I don't have an edge over Sequoia at the A. Don't, don't give me money to invest in, in the A. Give it to, to them. But I can assure you that my edge in the two stages that I just talked about, my edge is more acute, significant, lasting than anyone else. No one else in the Valley can match it, right? Sequoia, Andreessen, Benchmark, these are all funds that I certainly respect the heck out of, and they do amazing things, but they do it in their stages. I do it in my state. And just on a technical level, again, have there been situations where someone, you know, didn't go through the accelerator program and you thought, you know, they have a strong relation to Berkeley. We could bring them sort of into the ecosystem. We could have had them at the earlier stage, but now they're already, let's say, Series B, writing a small check there and you get allocation because they know you and they want to have you on board. Have there been situations like this? Yeah, we, we definitely do some of that. So I have to wear multiple hats when I think about what I want to achieve here. There is the, I want to make money from every investment hat. And then there is the, I want to build the ecosystem hat. So there are certainly companies that are red hot, that are about to explode, that we have special access to because we are this unique hub for venture activity in the Berkeley ecosystem. That for me to invest in it, I mean, I don't think I have an edge over whoever led that round, right? I mean, whoever led that round, they set the terms, they did their DD, they won that deal, you know, for whatever reason, they have an edge and there's a reason that they exist and people give them money, right? So I'm just going to follow, but having this company in the Skydive ecosystem helps the rest of my portfolio, right? So one classic example is Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi is a user Berkeley spin out working on risk five instruction set. So this is this open source instruction set. That's going to be a real competitor for XA6 and an ARC, right? 
and very exciting stuff that lives, eats, and breathes Berkeley. And it was clear to me as a technical person as well, that, that this is an idea and a platform that could disrupt the industry and, and it's time had come and we had a chance to invest in it. But more importantly, now the sci-fi people had more reason to spend time with our companies, right? So sci-fi this year, just raised around and now they're worth 2.5 billion dollars, but I still have the ability to get the founders to, to come by and, and hang out and share their insights and their connections. So those types of investments we will do, but I will expect to make money from that investment. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's super interesting. And I think it makes a lot of sense to just bring them into the ecosystem in one way or another, whether it's as an LP or writing a small check at the sea, then let's talk about some of the great success stories. And you mentioned some of them, Deep Scribe, which has just raised a 30 million series A led by Index Ventures, then Prophecy, a low code platform, which raised from inside and Super Note, which I think is actually a, a proof in the pudding kind of success case of a foreign company going to the Berkeley ecosystem, originally from Armenia, very technical team. They raised, I think, a 14 and a half million round led by base 10. Talk a little bit about some of these success stories you had so far in fund one and as it's shaping up for fund two. Yeah. So you've already named some of my favorite companies from fund, fund one and we just spent all day just going through the list, but I'll give you one that I really like to talk about because it highlights both the challenges that Google founders face and the unique value that we bring. Skyloom is a satellite communications company. So they tackle the problem that as more satellites go into LEO, RF bandwidth, there's only so much of it, we're going to run out. So their platform is building optical communications from satellite to earth. And there's a couple of different ways that it can be deployed, but it's a very exciting idea. But the problem is that the founders were based in Argentina. Now, for most of us, um, I had no idea that Argentina had a space industry and the idea that there could be interesting satellite technology coming from Argentina is just too foreign. I would hit pass on that email. But because of what we do, we dug a little deeper. And it turns out that Europe has done a lot of their satellite construction in Argentina for decades. So there is a thriving cluster for that kind of work. And these guys were veterans of that industry. The problem was that while their idea made sense and had legs, investors in Argentina are not prepared to take the risk of investing in, in a, you know, preceded angel stage round for a company that's going to change the way that satellites communicate. That's, that's just way too much risk. At the same time, the investor in the Valley who would absolutely back that kind of thing, they are not going to back one from Argentina. So they're in this, you know, holding pattern where if there were just two pages from Berkeley, it would have been a different story. Well, we saw the opportunity, we hustled to make it happen. And there's some really interesting stories there. Some of the hoops that we had to jump through, but we made it happen. They came out here. As soon as we invested in them, they were able to raise like a million from other investors in Argentina, in Latin America, because now they're like, oh, we get it now. Now that there is a Silicon Valley investor behind this, now they think it's credible. I want it. That's great. And in the six months that they spent here, we helped them with, with our connections to NASA, to Planet Labs. I mean, I don't want to take too much credit because really it's the founders that do the hard work. But obviously, as you can imagine, the Berkeley brand and the Berkeley ecosystem for what they're doing was a very nice way of breaking it through. 
And since then, they have collaborations with the Air Force. They're talking to uh, a variety of satellite constellations. I don't think I'm supposed to name them, so I won't. But, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that's in the pipeline. They're, they have 90 people now here in Oakland, and they're, they are working on a, probably can't say too much about that either, but they're working on a, a very interesting funding round that will probably put them at the top of our rankings in terms of all the companies that have come through. And what gives me great pleasure about that whole story is, is not just the financial performance, because I see that as a byproduct of what we do. What gets me really excited about that story is that this company would exist if it wasn't for us, right? Would not have gone off the ground if we didn't do the hard work and said, this is our thesis. This is the kind of founder and the kind of investment that we want to make. Talk a little bit about the program itself. I touched upon it with Caroline. Obviously you have, you have this intense program where you link them up with professors, where they have VCs coming in from the network, but what are sort of the challenges? We all know the prices on Shadow Avenue. It's a pretty large hurdle still. What, what are the day-to-day -day hurdles to get the best founders to join the program? I would say, first of all, I love the programming here and the founders love the programming here, but I always feel like there, there is not as much value digging into what, what they are because everybody knows what accelerators do. You know, it's all about giving you advice and, and giving you help and et cetera. And all I can say about that is that we do all that and we do it with real heart, with real compassion. Everybody involved here are founders. And when you talk to the people that have gone through our program, like, I think that's the thing that gives me so much pleasure and confidence that we're doing the right thing. It, it's not about the financial returns, which I definitely show the LPs. I mean, that's what they care about. But if I was walking off the street and I was going to, you know, invalidate this thing, I would just want to know how the founders feel. And the founders love us. They really do. I can't tell you the number of times I've been told, hey, I've been through multiple accelerators and not only is this the best. I didn't know what someone could be like this. You know, I'll talk a little bit about, I guess, where the differences are there so that people can kind of, you know, compare to their current experience. The first thing is just that we, we really, really, really care. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I know I'm kind of repeating myself, but that show, shows up in a lot of ways, you know, like there's, it's very rare that a email, a Slack to me or to the rest of my team asking for an introduction or asking for advice. It's very rare that that goes more than like, two hours unanswered and unread. It's very rare that someone asks for an intro to someone that we, we know or someone that even a second degree that we kind of be like, oh yeah, I know that's a good idea. Yeah. The next time I see him, I'll ask him if he's, he's open to a conversation. That's not what we do. You know, we say, okay, got it. I'm going to jump on the phone right now and I'm going to try to make that, that happen. So that's hard to quantify, but the value of that is so, is so clear. The second part was, you know, what the question was operational challenges that might make, make it hard for a, a global founder to plug in. And I have to say that after doing this for four years, it's actually much easier than I originally thought it would be. You know, I mean, I sort of had a, a mental image of, you know, as you said, rent, visas, right? Dealing with time zones and hiring here. Like there's a lot of things I thought would be a real roadblock. But when you look into it, it's actually not been not bad. I mean, housing, we actually went through the process, believe it or not, at one point we were actually gonna, going to work with someone to build out a house and make it sky doors, you know, make it like, like what they do at launch house, right? Like we were going to do that for our founders, but then I feel bad for our partners because they went to the effort of actually building it out. 
And the founders kind of said, well, we'll just Airbnb it. It's convenient. We're adults. We're professionals. You know, this is fine. And then on the visa side, obviously, you know, I'm anxiously anticipating the day when visa policy in the U.S. will catch up to what's good for American interests. But for the founders out there, actually not that that bad. The O-1 visa is very approachable for folks who are here on research. Obviously, they can get the J-1 and then do the OPT. So of the 100 plus companies that we've done, I mean, it, it can be a pain in the ass. Sometimes they have to leave the country to apply for a new visa. But for all intents and purposes, I think the obstacle for foreign founders has never been any of that stuff. The obstacle for founders is just, just all for foreign founders has always been, I don't have the network. And, and so that's where we provide that. We've really scaled back all the support and all those other pieces, just network. To wrap things up as we're running against the clock, you mentioned that in the beginning, I mean, you sort of stumbled into this gig, right? You never set out to be a venture capitalist. You thought you would do it for 50%. Now you're the venture capitalist in residence at Berkeley at a public university. What's sort of the future, the perfect future look like for you? What a great question. Yeah, it's funny because I'm not sure if you saw this, but there was an article about me during my quant fund days that was like the accidental hedge fund manager. Uh, and now I'm the accidental VC. Like I think most great founders, I just stumble in, into things when the opportunity pops up. I, I will say that I am extremely optimistic and excited about the future of what we can build here. When you think about the resources that we've been talking about so far here at Berkeley, the alumni base, the talent on campus, the advisor pool, we're not close to tapping even a small, small percent of that, right? Like, so even though I want to stay focused on the 20 commits per batch right now, I can see a future where we go up to 30. I can see a future where we go up to 35. I don't think we'll ever do a 300, 400 company cohort because that's a different feature, but I can easily see it something where we run, for example, six cohorts per year where they're staggered, right? So they'll come in. And then there's a demo day every two months, right? And there's two, there's a new batch coming coming in every two months. That's a vision that I think is absolutely viable. As a VC, we're always thinking about macro trends for the companies that we invest in. Why? Well, I, I think we should think about macro trends for VC as an industry. There is not a lack of capital in the valley, but that number is only going to go up because we've seen outstanding performance from this as a category over the last ten years. And yet many institutional investors have only put in 5%, 10% of their portfolio into venture. So that's got to go up. That's, that's going to go up. There's no lack of people willing to be VCs in the Valley, <laughs> as I'm sure we're, we're, we're well, well aware. So that's going to keep going up. The only thing that's not going up is the number of founders in the Bay Area. Berkeley and Stanford are not going to add more PhD students. There's only a pool of a couple hundred thousand people that VCs like to tap into. The macro trend for me is that 6 billion people around the world, I've talked to founders from Kazakhstan. I've talked to a founder from Cuba, believe it or not. This is not going to stop in Germany. And this is not going to stop in even Egypt or Nigeria. There's talent everywhere. We know this when we read the scientific journals, right? You read the papers, papers that come from all over the world. And yes, startups aren't, that makes no, no sense to me. So we will be, I think the global hub, we are committed to making that, that possible. 
we're committed to providing the kind of support that that class of founder needs. We're attracting advisors here who believe in the mission. I'll give you one more example. Many of these highly technical founders that are coming in, they know they're not the right CEO, right? Or at least if the right CEO, they know that they're not the head, the right person to sell this thing in the US. They're desperately looking for a business co-founder that could join them and really help them drive the go-to-market in the US, right? We can help with that. We are going to help help that. So imagine a entrepreneur's first type of a model where we will build up a database of talented entrepreneurs in the US who are looking for a product and a technology that they can combine with, right? That got a little too micro. From a macro perspective, the bottom line is as long as humanity has problems, as long as venture believes that the right combination of capital and technology can solve those problems, as long as venture is concentrated in the small geographic region, and there's a lot of reasons why that has been and why I think it's going to continue, a on-ramp, like what we are building that bridges that gap is something that all of us should embrace, should encourage, and, and I think we'll benefit from. Love it. With this, I'm going to leave you because I think you have a meeting, hopefully a, a founder meeting, someone who you can support and uh, go bears and go, bears. go Skydeck and, and everybody apply to, to Skydeck. This is probably your time for the call to action. Where can they find <laughs> out about Skydeck? When is the next batch? When can they apply? So our uh, batch 14 starts on Monday. So I'm extremely excited about that. In a lot of ways, one of the best cohorts that we've ever had, most competitive cohorts from like and then Bash 15 will probably start early November, if I remember my calendar correctly. So for our founders who are six months away from being prepared to come to the U.S., this is the perfect time to really sharpen your story. You know, we have partners around the globe as well. There are incubators that we work with, and they can help you sharpen up your pitch, help you really think through the market size, help you think through the competitive advantage so that when you apply to us, you're even more competitive. Perfect. Thank you so much.